This is Other Voices. We are listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Inga Boudreau. She grew up on a farm in Westerlo, the daughter of German artisans. Her father heeded Will Rogers' words, buy land, they're not making it anymore. And in 1932, sight unseen, bought a 200-acre farm in Westerlo for about $300. Inga and her sister attended the grade school in Westerlo and then went on to graduate from Burnox High School. Boudreaux fondly remembers two of her English teachers. In eighth grade, John O'Leary taught her respect for the English language. In high school, Nancy Hayden told her, never stop writing. Boudreaux never did stop. With master's degrees from NYU and Columbia, she launched a career in children's book publishing. She's talking to us from the desert. (laughs) Welcome, Inga. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be doing this. And let let me start with something. And that is to tell you that I have always had the utmost respect for the Fourth Estate. I think that what the press does is astonishing, um, so deserving of respect, so difficult, and I, I am your greatest champion. Well, we can use champions in this era. It's so disheartening to be seen as an enemy of the people. And um, when most journalists I know have spent their career thinking they were serving the people and serving democracy. So thank you for that. I would just love to start with hearing about how it is your family moved to Westerlo. (laughs) Okay, this is fun. Uh, My parents uh, were were German immigrants who were artisans. My mother was a sculptress, and my father was a fine leather craftsman, and his family um, owned a business in Germany that uh, involved fine leather craftsmanship. They came to the United States, and actually my mother's sculptures are, can, can still be found in Art Index, they came to the United States because Germany was in a recession. And so uh, they came to the United States, and my father found work as a fine leather craftsman. And my mother, who was the most amazing self-taught person I have ever known, and parenthetically, she was the kind of person who could look at a Chanel outfit and then simply cut a pattern out of newspaper and recreate it. She was marvelous. Um, she found work as a cook and they were, they lived in New York and worked in New York. But my father heard the Will Rogers words and Will Rogers was actually echoing Twain, which were by land, they're not making it anymore. <laughs> and he, he took it to heart. And my parents bought their farm in Westerlo in 1932, sight unseen. They're not making it, so they bought land. They bought it for something like $300, and my dad paid off on that for years. 
but my sister and I were born in the greater New York City area, and we did not move. They rented out the house on the farm, and we didn't move to Estrello until 1946. And at that point, um, <laughs> the, the stories are fun here. At that point, my parents owned a company that did in, in New York that did something that is barely heard of today, but it involved the artisanship of both of them. They created and produced all things that were used for home funerals. The beers for the caskets, the lighting, the religious art. My mother sculpted it. My father handcrafted and worked in wood. And those things were all created and produced by my parents together, actually, with um, my uncle who lived with us at the time. And they worked with funeral parlors, which were not doing what they do now. They were essentially the embalmers. And so my parents created all of this and had a company that produced those materials. When home funerals became a thing of the past, they had already started farming because you can't live on 200 acres and not think about farming. And so they went into farming wholeheartedly. And uh, when that, and that home funeral business really disappeared because funeral parlors took over all of that, um, they were heavily into farming with essentially it was beef cattle, but, also with every other animal you could possibly imagine. <laughs> what a remarkable upbringing you had. I'm just fascinated. I hadn't thought about that idea of home funerals. I've recently written about the latest change in funerals because of the pandemic, you know, where people are videoing them and watching them from afar, and they're returning now to the home um, to do that rather than the so-called funeral home. But what an interesting thing. You grew up kind of immersed in understanding mourning and death, I would think, if your parents were creating sculptures and other things to help families as as they were mourning. What what an interesting atmosphere to be raised in. Absolutely, and and to to be actually almost amusing about it, uh, but very true. Um, you could you could choose to have the accoutrements of your home funeral, either silver, gold, or ivory with shadowing. So you could have silver uh, religious art, silver beers, you know, the beers that the caskets stand, uh, sit on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, could be, they could be silver, they could be gold, or they could be ivory with sort of brown shadowing. So even at that time and with, you know, there's a bit of a smile that can go with that. You could choose your color scheme for your funeral, but everybody did it that way. And the the beers were delivered to your home. You you bought them or you could rent them. Uh, And parents worked with funeral parlors that made the major portion of those arrangements. Mm -hmm. Um, But but you could have your choice. And uh, and it was all it was all part of the way my sister and I grew up watching them, watching my mother sculpt uh, Jesus. Mary, the infant of Prague, do um, uh, Jesus on the on a, on a crucifix, 
all of that. She sculpted it all, holy water fonts for, for Catholic funerals. She sculpted it all. My father cast it in plaster, and they sprayed the color of your choice. Wow, isn't that amazing? Just the way today weddings, they had the brides choose their color scheme. I had never realized that with funerals. Well, so once you arrived at the farm in Westerlo, that must have been quite an adjustment, having been raised in the greater New York City area to suddenly be in rural Helderbergs. Just what was that like? Absolutely. I, I would, I think my my mother um, was probably instrumental in making it so so seamless for my sister and for me because she was a great storyteller she was a marvelous storyteller and uh she was very investigative and so she roamed the fields with us she was very friendly we made friends with our neighbors very quickly who were just marvelously helpful people um, one neighbor in particular who uh, was m- very well read and uh, and actually to jump ahead a little bit reminds me a lot of a lot of the children's book authors and illustrators I have known because he never treated my sister and me as kids or little adults. He always. He was instructive. He shared his knowledge of the neighborhood and and upstate New York, um, and so there were people who who were very friendly and jumped in and made us feel not so alone. Uh, but yes, it was for my mother in particular. She she had to jump in and uh, and adapt. My dad was. If you're working in wood and you're working in plaster casting and you're, you're fulfilling orders, it's a little busier. So, um, but she was the sculptress, and then when she was through sculpting something or creating something, she sort of was taking care of the kids and stepping back a bit. But um, but she was incredible. She once we had the farm rolling, she uh, cured hams and uh, made sausage and. Uh, she did everything. She was great. She <laughs> but does. It was an adjustment, absolutely. Yeah. Well, she sounds like just a remarkable mother. She could create Chanel by looking at it, and she could also sculpt, and she could tell stories. Wow. Well, so tell us what it was like going to school. You went to Bernox. I went to Westville Grade School. I actually, um, I, I was fortunate in another way. My sister was is two years older and she started school and here's where the lonely part comes in I was lonely and so I could not wait till she came home and the minute she came home I started studying with her so I was very fortunate I started school in third grade now that meant that she and I uh, were in the same grade all the way through school but uh, we went to Westerlo grade school and then on to Bernard Central um I had a couple of outstanding teachers at Bern, and, and I must say, uh, I will never forget them. One was my eighth grade English teacher, John O'Leary, who taught respect for the English language. It was marvelous. He just revered the language and grammar, and 
to this day, I remember things he taught. And the other person was my high school English, uh, my ninth, 10th, 11th, I guess, great English teacher, um, Nancy Sherwin Hayden, who passed away not that many years ago, but who, with whom I had one of those life-changing moments, never forget it. I was extremely busy in high school. I was in drama. I played the clarinet. I did all kinds of things. And at one point, I was, I owed Nancy Hayden like three compositions (laughs) or four, maybe. I was way behind. And she struck a bargain with me. She said, Inga, um, give me one really long, good one, and we're we're square. (laughs) And so I said, okay. And I wrote a piece about uh, young people going to war uh, in the Second World War. First World, I might have been the First World War. I, I, I remember the phrase. And I, I, in it, I wrote about the doughboys on their way to destiny. Nancy pulled me aside and said, I got to tell you something. Never stop writing because he gave me chills. And I never forgot that. She was a great teacher and she praised me at a moment when I I didn't even, I didn't even really think about what I had written, but she called my attention to the fact that I should pay attention to it and, and never give up on it. And I didn't. And so I, 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 satisfied the the composition requirement. Nancy and I were square. And um, and that was those were the two outstanding people at Bern when I when I went to school there. And after that I went to U Albany um, and then went on to get graduate degrees at NYU and Columbia. Uh, where my em- my emphasis was the communication arts, print, film and so on. But that was that was basically how it went. I went to Westerlo, and then I went to Burn Burn Knox. A long bus ride to Burn every day. Long bus ride back. Sometimes we all had to get in the back of the bus so that the bus could make the hills in the snowy weather. Uh, all great memories. Oh, they sound like they are. And I remember Nancy Hayden myself. She would do Shakespearean plays with the high school kids and get them excited about it. But I'd just like to hear now how you made the leap into book publishing. How, what okay. took you in that path? Yes, this is fun, too. Well, I had, um, as I say, I had uh, majored in and taken graduate degrees in the communication arts, print, film, journalism, etc. And when I graduated from uh, Columbia, I was newly married and a friend of my uh, husband who worked at NYU said, oh my gosh, you have a degree in the communicative arts. I know somebody who works in publishing. You'd be great in publishing. And I sort of said, okay, I was newly, newly had an MA and an MS in my hand. And I, I, I just sort of accommodated, okay, that's fine. I'll go and interview. And I interviewed this person, but in the course of talking with her, she turned me on to someone else I should chat with. 
And I was introduced to the director of what was known as a trade league. It was a, um, an organization that promoted publishing and in, in particular, specifically promoted the publishing of children's books. It was an organization called the Children's Book Council. It exists in a very, very uh, constricted way today, not what it was at that time. But at that time, it was the, uh, the promoter of National Children's Book Week. And generally, the, the promoting league for children's book publishing. And I started my career working for them in promotion, in uh, creating their materials, their, their book promotion and children's reading promotion materials. Uh, and that's where I met some of the first authors and illustrators that I later got to know very well when I moved from that trade league to a publishing house. Um, it didn't take all that long. And somebody said, hey, come work for us. And I said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and it was it was the <laughs> I would just like to hear some of your thoughts on why children's books are so important. I know in my own life, not just the ones I was read to as a child, but even the ones later that I read to my own children, they just stay with you in ways that some of the more adult literature doesn't. Um, if you could just talk a little about why those children's books are so important. Oh, absolutely. And I am, I am one of the greatest champions of children's books, children's literature, children's book illustration. At a time when life is very constrained, I'm talking about childhood, and actually to quote Maurice, Maurice Sendak, children don't have a lot of power. You know, parents may think kids have a lot of power. Look what they do. They holler and yell and break things and give me a hard time and need my attention all the time. But kids really don't have a lot of power. They are, they have to, they have to obey. They have to, they, they have to do what is required. They have to eat what's on the plate or eat a lot of it or go to bed at a certain time or all of those kinds of things. And children's books open a world in which they really are power. They enter it and they experience it and it brings to them worlds that they don't have. It brings to them the impossible the fantastic, which they may be dreaming about or thinking about, but it's not part of their day-to-day life. But they, they open this book and suddenly there they are in a world that they may have been thinking, may have been dreaming, may have been wondering about. And within that world, it, they're king. When they open the, the covers of that book, they're sort of in that world and they're in charge and they identify with characters, those characters are their friends, and they may be lonely kids. They may not have many people around them. They may be um, just in a world of adults, or they may be in a world of too many kids, and they're looking for a little bit of privacy and a chance for their, for their minds to go off in their own private direction. But children's books 
gives them that opportunity. They can dream. They can make believe they are those characters. They can fight the battles of those characters and be winners the way they are. Let's take, um, let's take where the wild things are for the moment, because that is such a well-known book. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's Max, and he misbehaved. Good heavens. And so he went to where the wild things are. And he was in charge. I mean, this is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Max was in charge. He tamed them all. And then at the very end, it comes full circle because he was sent to his room and he had misbehaved and all of that. But in the end, you know, everybody forgave him and his supper was still hot. <laughs> and so he, he could misbehave and he could go out there where those wild things were and he tamed them which was a little bit like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to tame you because I misbehaved and you sent me to my room. (laughs) But I can be in charge of things. And so kids can identify with, uh, and and this is not all controversial. It's not that kids are only having a good time because most of what they love about children's books is, is this chance to expand their imagination, to expand who they are, to think about the possibilities of their life as, as small as kids are, they uh, and as young as they may be, this is this is part of of growing and expanding and and becoming who they will be someday. And I think that's why kids remember their favorite books. They and children's book authors and illustrators who are truly successful, they know that as they are going forward, they respect kids as individuals. They're not just, as I think I said before, they're not just tiny adults. They're not people you talk down to. They are people that you respect. They may be feisty. They have great imagination. They may be happy, unhappy, whatever. But they are their own individual. And the great writers and illustrators respect that. And I think that's why children's literature is so crucial and books are so important in the life of a child and reading those books with kids brings parents caregivers friends into the life of that child and kind of says look we're in this together this is a good thing enter this book with me we'll enter it together and let's both grow from from experiencing it Oh, that's wonderful. Well, in passing, you mentioned Maurice. <laughs> so I'd just love to hear a little about uh, kind of your relationship with him and what your role is as when you're working with an author like this, especially one who's an artist, too. That's so wonderful about his books, how the words and the pictures just go together. But what your own role is and it sounds like you had a friendship with him, but just a little about what that's like, that relationship. Uh, I did. I had a wonderful friendship with Maurice. And he was he was funny. He could be irreverent. I have a funny Maurice story that I will tell you. Um, and, and even in the way that he looked at children. And he went through hardship. When he did Where the Wild Things Are, it was rejected by everyone except this wonderful editor, Ursula Nordstrom at Harper and Rowe, because people said that some of the people who read the book and some of the uh, uh, agents who looked at it, oh, no, no, you can't do that. 
you can't have this, he's misbehaving. And then there's all these wild animals and wild creatures. And that's a terrible, it's a scary book. Look at those critters. You, we don't want this book. We don't care about this book. And this wonderful woman who was the editor at Harper and Rose said, Maurice, you've got, you know, an imagination that the world needs to, to appreciate. Uh, but Maurice, um, he, he loved to talk about what he did. He loved to talk about how he felt about kids. Uh, I mean, my relationship with him was mostly um, to try to supply what he needed <laughs> because he was such a special talent. And Maurice never asked for anything. Um, he had funny stories. I will tell you one funny story that he told in just in thinking about kids and um, and kids' role in life and kids' powerlessness because that's how he grew up. Uh, he grew up in a, uh, a, a conservative Jewish family and in Brooklyn, a sister and, and a brother. And he, um, he always felt a bit lonely, a bit constrained. So this funny story that he tells is, uh, he said, I was, I was reading a book for kids about sex. And he said, and, and kids, kids need to know what goes on in this world. I mean, they see cats and dogs reproducing and they see people. And so in this book, and he said, and all of these books, many books, not only about kids and sex, but books for kids, they tend to talk down to kids. He said, and I, I will never forget, this book said, sex is something that parents do when there is a special occasion. And Maurice said, I never forgot that the kids who read that book, oh, he was so funny. The kids who read that book and took it to heart must have said, oh my gosh, tomorrow is Hanukkah. <laughs> I wonder what I, I wonder what's going on. <laughs> or Easter or Christmas or the Fourth of July. He said, What about the Fourth of July? It's a special day. He was marvelous that and he said, I'm sure the writers of that, the people who were trying to introduce children to um to human affection and, and all of that, never thought that a kid might look at it that way. Oh, oh my goodness. Isn't Tomorrow that Tomorrow is the 4th of July. <laughs> Fireworks going off in the bedroom. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that funny? Exactly. Oh. He was wonderful. He was, and all of them, all of the, the uh, actually, Maurice had another role in, in my life, in the life of, of uh, myself and my sister. Maurice loved dogs, and some of the books, almost all the books he wrote, had a dog in them. And Maurice absolutely loved German shepherds. And Maurice told me about the the monks at Newskeet in New York, Upper New York State who raised German shepherds. And as a result of that, the most wonderful German shepherd who has now departed uh, the world that we know, but came into my sister and my life. And, and there was Maurice, you know, 
wielding his influence in yet another way. So there was a, it, it was my sister's dog, but uh, we adored him. And Maurice, Maurice's dogs were everywhere. And he wrote Higgledy Piggledy Pop, had dogs in it. And uh, the one about Old Mother Hubbard, the takeoff on Old Mother Hubbard. Um, they've all got dogs in them. Um, so, and Maurice loved his dogs. So- Maurice's house. And Maurice's house in Connecticut was set up for the dogs. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. And so your sister owned a dog that was trained by the monks of Newski. I've read that book, and I've never been able to train my dogs that way, where they will sit by your side as you eat your dinner. And just, yes. yeah, uh, wow. She, yes, she got she got Thor from the monks. I mean, they raised them also. They, they right. you know, they breed. She got Thor from the monks at Newski as did Maurice, all of his shepherds. And there were many shepherds in his life over the years. But yes, indeed, uh, came from the monks at Newskeet. And the the absolutely most marvelous and gentle dog you could ever have imagined with a basso profundo bark that would have scared <laughs> people away. Oh. And, and he was really just saying, hi, come on in. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but it was fun. It's a fun Maurice story. Um, all of these people that I got got to know so well, Tommy DePaola, Madeline Lang, a lot of the, the not only children's uh, picture book authors, but Madeline Langle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, uh, gosh. Tommy DePaola. Well, let's just Ashley hear where our time is so rapidly running out, but I just loved hearing <laughs> about Maurice Sendak. Could you tell us a little about Madeline Langle or about Tommy DePaola? I would just love to hear a little about them. Tommy and I just had a lifelong friendship. He was hilarious. He was funny. Um, he was always kind, and he loved talking with kids. He just loved talking with them. And he would sometimes, if there was a, a presentation where Tommy would would um, appear at a library or at a school, um, he would actually get sidetracked just talking with some of the kids because he loved it so much. And he'd have these wonderful conversations and draw them out. And you'd be amazed at how he got into the, the, the child's emotions and, and drew that child out. And it was as though um, all shyness disappeared. First, they all sat there. You know, here comes Tommy DePaola. We love his books. And then he would just start talking to them. And it just, uh, it just went away. Um, the, any shyness went away. I, I traveled. I, I visited him at his house lots of times. And one of the funniest fun things about Tommy was that on Sunday morning he would make blini and serve vodka with it. <laughs> Russian blini with sour cream and vodka, which um. was great fun. And another another person who was marvelously funky was E.B. White, who wrote Charlotte's Web. And um, E.B., uh, I went to his house any number of times and dined at his house. And e., the very first time I ever went there, because this can only happen once, the very first time I ever went there, I thought, oh my gosh, E.B. and Jean must be sitting on the porch up in the mountains of New Hampshire. They must be sitting on the porch. And I got closer, and these two elderly people were sort of just sprawled in chairs on their porch, on his porch. And I thought, they're not moving. It's E.B. and Jean. I think they're dead. Oh my gosh, I'm coming to see E.B. White, and he's dead. And I got closer, and they had life-sized 
stuffed replicas of themselves sitting in rocking chairs on the porch. And they were in the house just cracking up because <laughs> it was the first time I ever went there. Oh, my god! I did not know. I mean, just, just marvelous people. And Madeline Langle, who had, was one of the most egalitarian and devout people I have ever known. She was a reader at uh, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. And uh, a, such, a, such a marvelous champion of the human condition. Such a marvelously understanding person. I traveled all over the country with her. She would have appearances, and I, I would uh, fly with Madeline, who always insisted that she only have flights with meals, because it was possible if you hopped around the country at that time. I mean, you don't get meals now, but mm-hmm. at that time, uh, it, you, could, you could end up three, three legs of a flight, and not a, one of them had a meal on them. So one of Madeline's absolute musts was that uh, that she had to have a meal on her flight, and she loved ice cream late at night. <laughs> so sometimes I would I would go on an ice cream run because I was traveling with Madeline Langle. Again, one of the one of the most marvelous people, um, and and I tr- I treasure all of their cards and notes and letters that I still have. They were kind. And they were egalitarian. They were non-judgmental. As I say, most of them had gone through different kinds of hardships in their life or ongoing hardships, uh, hiding disabilities, hiding parts of their identity from the world, and yet embracing everyone. Wow, what a life you have led. I'm so sorry we've sped through our half hour. Do you have any closing thoughts to leave our listeners with? Any any pearls of wisdom <laughs> to share? You know, I've, I always liked the ending of Charlotte's Web. When Wilbur, you know, he's in the... In the, in the cellar of the barn there, and Charlotte is gone, and no one ever quite took her place in his heart, but he says, and this is part of what I think about when I think about the press, when I think about the enterprise, which, by the way, has been my friend for many, many years. He said, and I, I'm not sure I, I'm quoting it exactly correctly, but he said, Charlotte was in a class by herself. It's not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. And Charlotte was both of those things. (laughs) So I love the idea of his remembering her so well as a true friend. But words also meant a great deal. And I think I think what I would love to the message I would love to give people is please buy books and read. Please read to your children. Please share with your children. And please tell your children stories, stories that come out of yourself and your heart, your life, what you watch, you see. 
tell stories, communicate. That's it.